0: I came across an interesting experiment the other day that everyone can try at home, and it got me thinking a little bit. I'm not sure if you've ever seen it. Did you ever immerse an uncooked egg in a jar of vinegar and leave it there for about 12 hours or so? What you can observe is the formation of bubbles on the egg's surface, and after half a day or so, you take it out and find that the eggshell is mostly gone. It actually feels quite squishy and is a bit. I think, bouncy is a good term. If you try this at home, it is bouncy, but not robust, and eventually it will rupture and you have an egg to clean up, actually. There is a certain beauty to this simple experiment, and demonstrates the power of the interactions between acids and bases, which are widely used in everyday life. As an illustration, the use of baking powder in various bakery products is also a very good illustration. Let's have a look at both the egg experiment and at something a bit more constructive in the form of baking powder to understand what's going on there. My name is Johannes Vogel, and you're listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, my podcast where I explain the chemistry that happens all around us in layman's terms. Chemistry is the study of the attributes and changes that substances can undergo, no matter if they're gases, liquids, or solids. And believe me when I tell you that this happens everywhere around us, at this very moment. As usual, let's first have a look at the basics. Both examples of the eggshell dissolving and the baking powder letting the dough rise are examples of interactions between acids and bases. Anyone who is into movies or TV shows with action scenes or other violence has seen his or her fair share of unrealistic scenes where super-duper acids kill someone instantly. Well, maybe except for that one episode of Breaking Bad in Season 1. That one was actually quite realistic, if I remember it correctly. So what are acids and bases? First, a little trivia for you. Acids taste sour and bases taste bitter. I actually did not know about the base part, just as a side note, but back to the question. What are acids and bases? To answer that, let's first look at what happens when you mix them. Actually, just a quick detour on this one. Before we get to that point, when you mix an acid with water, Did they ever tell you whether you should pour acid into water, or water into acid? It is the former. Small quantities of acid into water, one at a time. And the reason for that is simple. The mixing releases heat. If you use very strong acids, it can make the liquid boil and start to splash and sputter. Which is why you add the acid to the water. It's better to have water splash on you than concentrated acid, that's why. But now again, back to the question. What happens when you mix an acid and a base in water? The first thing you will see is that here also the liquid will heat up. For different reasons than with the acid water mixing. But it can still be a violently hot reaction between strong acids and strong bases. For the acids and bases that we want to discuss, there are two other things that happen. And the maddening thing about this is, you can't see it. Number one. You form water in the process. So since our liquid medium is water, you make more water in the already existing water. Great. Interesting. Next. And number two, and that's an interesting one, you form a salt. That's similar to, but not necessarily exactly like, what we know as table salt. You know, the stuff that you use to, you know, season your dish. As I said, you cannot see it it is not like you suddenly see white crystals appear in the mixing jar. So there's no heap of salt crystals. No, it is more like salt that you add to your soup. You will taste it in enough quantity, and you can boil the water off and it will be there, but the formation itself you will not see. So for example, if you look at some fairly common household items, if you were to pour vinegar and sodium hydrogen carbonate together, Sodium hydrogen carbonate, or baking soda, has many uses. Baking, cleaning, it's a fungicide, a mild disinfectant. As I said, quite a few uses. Anyways, so you mix vinegar and baking soda together, all of that in water, of course, and you would see exactly what we mentioned. The liquid would get hot, you would form water and the salt, in this case something called sodium acetate. In this particular case, there's also something extra happened as well, but we'll get to that, so don't try this at home just yet. But let's back off a little for a sec and look at what causes these results. I've been giving a whole lot of facts without explaining myself. I know that is never a good sign, really. So let's start at the beginning. Firstly, the group of acids and bases that I described above actually have a name. Scientists refer to them as Brønsted-Lowry acids and Brønsted-Lowry bases. The definition of a Brønsted acid and bases is as follows: Brønsted acids can donate a proton, and Brønsted bases can accept a proton. All this happens in something called, quite fittingly, a proton transfer reaction. So no surprise there. And everyone will ask themselves now: So what is a proton? A proton is a subatomic particle, so smaller than an atom, that is positively charged. An electron, on the other hand, um, most people seem to be more comfortable with the word electron for some reason. An electron is also a subatomic particle that is negatively charged, so they're a little bit like yin and yang here. In neutral elements, the number of protons and electrons is always equal, okay? Okay. This is the official definition. But let's tackle this from a different angle that will get us closer to our question. Most of us will have seen before that water is often written as H2O, right? H2O means two H's or hydrogens and one oxygen. An acid gives off H, and a base gives off OH minus. It's a little bit like with magnets, you see, where a negative pole attracts a positive pole. The OH minus snatches up an H plus to form water, namely H2O. Fellow chemists and physicists would most likely want to crucify me for this illustration, so I apologize for them. But for the sake of this description, I find this illustration actually quite fitting for those who are not familiar with all the terminologies. What else happens during this formation of water is that it gives off heat. So the formation of water actually forms um, the heat that you can see. Well, you can't heat, uh, form heat. It makes the liquid warmer. And the H+, plus that I talked about, if you remember, that H+, plus given off by an acid, can also be called a proton. Thus, we're coming right back to what a Brønsted acid is. The respective bases are the ones giving off OH-, minus, answering the question, what is a proton? After the formation of water, what we're now left with is an acid that lost a proton, an H+. Plus. So it has one more electron, therefore considered negatively charged. And a base that has lost an OH minus, therefore the remainder has one less electron than protons. And hence, it is positively charged. In the example from before, mixing baking soda and vinegar would give us a sodium plus from the baking soda and something called acetate, that is negatively charged, from the vinegar. So those two together, like with the attraction of magnetic poles that I mentioned before, associate with each other ionically, and this is known as a salt. When we think of salts, we typically think of table salt used on those delicious French fries that may be originally Belgian, or French, let's not get into that dispute. It is far more complex than what we are trying to talk about here. Table salt is an actual fact, something called sodium chloride, which is a positive sodium, so Na plus, and a negative chloride ion, Cl minus, and that is a salt. So, a bit long winded, but here we are. A Brønsted acid donates a H+, and a Brønsted base accepts this H+, to form water and a salt. That is, a pair of ionic compounds, one positive and one negative. We're now almost equipped to understand what is happening in our egg experiment, and what is happening when we're using baking powder. There's one extra information necessary that I will explain on our way to enlightenment, so to speak. So let's look at that egg experiment again. So we're putting an egg into a glass of vinegar. There are actually a fair few videos on the internet on this. In the show notes, I linked one on YouTube so that you can have a look, uh, if you're interested in fact. So what you'll see is, so the vinegar is the acid and then when the egg is immersed in the watery vinegar, straight away, there are these little bubbles forming on the surface of the egg. Did I say anything about gases in this interaction yet? Well, the eggshell consists mainly of something called calcium carbonate, probably better known as chalk. The carbonate part is what we're after. That plays the role of our base. Now, remember how I said the base and acid will form water? Well, I also said that a base has OH. I was not quite honest here. You see, Carbonate can be written as CO3, or one carbon atom and three oxygen atoms. So to form water, you need two protons, or two H pluses from vinegar and one oxygen from carbonate. So in essence, the OH minus is formed during the process, in a way. So when you add two protons and take away one from CO3, just do the maths What are we left with? You add CO3 and you remove one O. What you're left with is CO2. You guys know what CO2 is, right? Carbon dioxide, and that is a gas at room temperature. So the bubbles on the surface of the egg is carbon dioxide from the dissolution of the egg. That is what's going on here. We're essentially letting the carbonate go up in, well, not smoke, but in air. How neat is that? And what happens with the calcium afterwards? Well, the vinegar gives off its proton and is left with a negative portion, as we mentioned before. For vinegar, it is called an acetate. Calcium, in this case, is a positive portion and they form a salt together called calcium acetate that will remain dissolved in the water. Again, positive and negative, attracting each other. So what you effectively have is a part of the shell going up in smoke, just shooting out of the liquid and the rest becoming a salt, settling in the solution. Well, based on that, how do you think the dough rises when you add baking powder? Exactly. Baking powder produces gas too, and that is how the leavening process works. And it also does this via an acid-base interaction. And here's how. Baking powder is a mixture of a gas producing base and one or more acids, the base is usually sodium bicarbonate, also called baking soda, or bicarbonate of soda, if you remembered from the previous section. Do you recognize the carbonate part? It is actually the same as before, just with a different counter ion. sodium in this case, calcium beforehand. The acid used varies from brand to brand in baking soda, but all acids are solids that need to be dissolved in water. The reason here is quite practical, it's called baking powder and not baking water. You need a solid for storage and for weighing out and so on and so forth. Just for your interest, next time you look at the ingredients at the back of the box, watch out for something called disodium pyrophosphate, also given the E number E450, or something called cream of tartar, which is a compound made from tartaric acid. That, again, can be found quite widely in various fruits, like grapes or bananas, and in wine, which is why in German, in fact, it's called wine acid. The last clever thing that people do is that they add not one but two acids to the mix. Why? Well, one acid reacts at room temperature to start the leavening process of the dough there and then. And then you can put the dough in the oven to increase the temperature slightly, which may kickstart the second acid to carry on with the reaction for an even more leavened dough. It's quite clever, really. So let's recap. Baking powder is a mix of solid base and solid acid or acids. The base reacts in the dough to create gas. This is the carbonate part, as I mentioned before. Where it takes up two acids, the CO3 then loses one oxygen to give off water and CO2, which is the gas that is actually used to raise the dough, to make it more fluffy, to taste better, and so on and so forth. But what stops the acid and base from going off in the box, leading to constant popping noises in the shop when you have a sealed box and gases formed and everything just goes broom? It's a fair point, if I may say so myself. Solids don't typically react when they're not dissolved into solution. That is why the baking powder only starts reacting in the dough and not already in the box. However, moisture in the air might slightly dissolve some of the solids and kickstart the process. That in a sealed container would make for very interesting situations, potentially leading to loads of popping containers. And I'm actually quite sure it has happened in the past, which is why there is another ingredient added to the mix that stabilizes the entire melange, as the French would say. I don't have a clue why I just switched to this. Sorry. Uh, The entire mixture is what I meant. What you need is an additional solid that can prolong the shelf life by absorbing moisture, and that is otherwise inert i.e. that is not non-reactive during storage. Usually the chosen ingredient is something like a starch of some kind. Mostly the source is corn, rice, wheat, or something else, but those three of the uh, first ones are the most common. In all cases, anyway, the above is achieved, and it makes it easier to weigh and handle as well. So there's an added bonus for the bakers out there. So there you have it yet another ubiquitous chemical interaction used in something as common as making and baking dough. You use an acid and react it with a base. The resultant neutralized base decomposes into a gas which raises the dough to make it nice and fluffy for our eating pleasure. Pretty neat stuff, I think. There are many, many more examples of acid-base interactions that we may or may not encounter over the course of these episodes. But until then, I say goodbye and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, a podcast about chemistry that happens all around us, explained in layman's terms. If you liked what you heard, please rate us on iTunes or the podcast medium of your choice. Alternatively, you can leave comments. All of this would help us. Thank you very much for listening.